Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Mustful, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Leah Price, author of the book, What We Talk About When We Talk About Books, The History and Future of Reading. Dr. Price, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Leah Price is a Frances Lee Higginson Professor of English Literature at Harvard University, where she teaches courses on 18th and 19th century literature, gender, fiction, and the history of books. Her books include How to Do Things with Books in Victorian Britain and The Anthology and Rise of the Novel. She writes for the New York Times Book Review, London Review of Books, Times Literary Supplement, San Francisco Chronicle, Boston Globe, and Public Books, where she is also a section editor. She is curious about what, where, when, and how we read, but most of all, she wants to know why. Dr. Price, uh, I was really uh, interested by this book. It it gave me a lot of new perspectives on reading that I don't normally consider, Um, but I'd like to start just with your interest in books, and, and can you tell us about what, where, and when you read and what reading habits you have? That is a tough question. Um, Like many people I know, I would say that I do whatever works, meaning that also, like many people I know and many historical people whom I've encountered through their written traces, I read in small scraps and chinks of time. I listen to audiobooks in the car. I read on my phone on the subway, I read on the toilet, I read when I'm waiting in line, and I do think that that pattern of reading is typical in that, at least in rich countries like ours, the thing standing in the way of reading is not usually access to physical objects, the ability to afford books. It's usually finding time to read and carving out chunks of time in which you're not tempted to do something else instead of reading. Well, I think we can all relate to that. I I travel with a book whether I plan to read it or not. I'm not sure. You just never know when you'll you'll need to pass some time. Maybe it's like carrying a granola bar around in your pocket just in case you uh, get lost on a hike. Uh-huh. Uh, so what exactly sparked your love and curiosity of books? I, I found it most interesting that, you know, you talk a lot, not just about reading, but about the, you know, the, the process of printing a book, um, how, you know, how we stand or sit or, or the settings that we find ourselves in. What, what gave you that interest in, in reading and books? I think probably spending uh, way too much time in libraries and becoming aware of the extent to which books are not just a kind of convenient bucket that carries an idea from an author's mind to a reader's, but that rather they are physical objects that depend on human beings to produce them and catalog them and shelve them and resolve them and make decisions about whether to keep them. So this is a book about books, but it's also a book about all of the uh, readers and other users of books 
on whom their survival depends. How would you define a book? Uh, is it just the words on the page, or is it the physical object? Well, that's an interesting dichotomy, because if you look even at reviews on Amazon, if you look, say, at the reviews of David Copperfield, you'll see some reviews talking about how this is a terrible book because David uh, made the wrong marital decision, or it gets started too slowly, and then you'll find other reviews saying that it's a good book because it arrived in good condition, or a bad book because the cover was creased, or uh, it was uh, delivered too slowly. So I think both of, most of us, when we think of a book, we're thinking both of the physical object and of the words that it contains. And one of the things that I've learned from the academic discipline of book history is to distinguish between the book, meaning a physical object, and the text, meaning a sequence of words. And one of the clearest ways to draw that distinction is if you think of the different physical forms that the same text can take. So one of the exercises that I do often with my students at the beginning of the semester is to show them from a distance so that they can't actually read the writing a Gideon Bible, a, a copy of the King James Bible made for giving as a present, a teen study Bible, and an edition of the revised standard version produced by Oxford University Press uh, for use in college-level Bible as literature courses. And the students are very surprised when they actually get close to the books to see that these are all, roughly speaking, the same text, but they're very different kinds of books, so that to them, the the Oxford World's Classics Bible looks more like a paperback reprint of a work of literature. And they recognize always that the uh, Sunday School Bible is some kind of gift book. So they can understand or receive the messages that the physical form of the book is sending even without reading the words that it contains. So they come to recognize it rather than from its title or its content by, by its shape? Exactly. And an even more striking example of that would be the yellow pages. Even people of my students' generation who have not grown up with telephone books, nonetheless, if you show them a copy of the Yellow Pages, or if, as I sometimes do at the beginning of the semester, I will turn off the lights and ask someone to feel that book. Once they feel the floppiness and the shininess of the cover, once they feel the texture of the pages, they know that it's a telephone book. Mm -hmm. Is that uh, more challenging these days as, as uh, Yellow Pages becomes digital digitalized? Well, Indeed, and in the early days of the cell phone, one enterprising company began turning uh, yellow pages into 
booster seats for toddlers, which is, of course, um, an acknowledgement of the fact that telephone books used to be very useful to sit on and you cannot sit on your smartphone. So that although uh, electronic devices have taken over some of the functions of the book in regards to content, there are other ergonomic and material functions long filled by books that electronic devices um, are not filled. Mm-hmm. Do you prefer an e-reader over, over a print book? It depends on where, when, and why I am reading. And that seems to be true, judging from the statistics, of many readers worldwide. One of the surprises of the last decade or so is that the future of electronic reading has turned out not to lie in devices made specifically for the reading of long-form book-length text, so that where Amazon laid its bets early on on the Kindle as a dedicated e-reader, if you look at how people worldwide are reading books electronically, In East Asia, in large parts of East Asia, people are reading on their smartphones. In large parts of Europe, people are reading primarily on their laptops. In the United States, people are reading a great deal on tablets. But dedicated e-readers such as the Kindle have really turned out to be a popular flop. And of course, that raises questions about competition from other media, because if you're reading on your tablet or your phone, you are reading on a device on which you could also be doing various alternative activities that have nothing to do with long-form reading. Uh, I'd like to talk about the the anecdotes you use throughout the book. Um, there's a lot of you, you. You have quite a good sense of humor. You had me laughing uh, quite a bit. You have some clever metaphors and some very interesting stories. Uh, for instance, I, I really found it um, enjoyable the way you talk about the Harvard Book Depository uh, and comparing it to a Siberian exile for books. Uh, can you talk about uh, some of the, the anecdotes, maybe? Um, which ones are your favorites and, and how you came to, to use them in this book? So the book depository, I'm glad that you found that interesting because uh, this is an exurban warehouse to which the Harvard University Library sends books that are not frequently consulted, given that not all the books that are acquired actually fit on site, on campus, and visiting this gigantic, essentially, uh, refrigerator, because it's a climate-controlled warehouse, which is good for books, but bad for the human beings who use the books, was, for me, a poignant reminder of how few of the books that are produced actually find a reader. That is, most books spend most of their life sitting on a shelf, like wallflowers, 
Mm-hmm. The moment at which a book finds its way into the hands of a reader and changes someone's perspective on the world are vanishingly small. And so one question that the book asks is, what are books doing when they're not being read? If the book is sitting on your coffee table, does it still have some function? And I think that's a particularly pressing question. Now, as many of the verbal functions of printed books are uh, migrating into the digital realm, what job is left for printed bound paper? Uh, well, I, they must still serve as a, you know, or the, you need the originals to, to be able to go back and, and um, verify, I suppose, what was, what was there. Sure. And many books are now born digital, but of course, many books now remain born uh, on paper. And it's interesting to think about which genres were the first to come to be published electronically and which genres are resisting that process. Children's books remain a heavily print form, if only because children's books have long been one of the most imaginative genres in the ways that they use the material properties of paper, thread, and glue. Think of pop-up books. Think of a book like The Very Hungry Caterpillar with holes in its pages. Think of a book like Pat the Bunny that instructs a reader in how to manipulate the book, which reminds us that children don't just learn how to read, they also need to learn how to handle, how to turn the pages of a book, how to fold down the corners or not fold down the corners, that you proceed in this direction and not in that direction, that you hold the book in this orientation and not in that orientation. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of which, you, you at one point in the book, you say that handling can remake a book as decisively as words penciled in the margins. Um, I tend to try and keep my books as clean as possible. Uh, I, don't, um, I don't like highlighting or, or marking. Do you uh, mark up your books? Um, I do, but then again, I'm a professional reader. I I tend to perhaps it's a way of marking territory to leave the mark of your own body in a book. That said, like many teachers, I am embarrassed when I lend books to my students and then remember belatedly that there's some kind of sophomoric scribbling in the margin. But it's true that historically attitudes toward writing in books have changed radically over the past couple of centuries. Until the 19th century, writing in a book was considered the 
responsible thing to do because if you didn't write in the book, you weren't really internalizing it. You weren't really making it your own. And in the 19th century, in part with the foundation of public libraries, starting around the middle of the 19th century, a new ethos develops, which I think you are subscribing to very responsibly, which is to leave books clean, not to touch them, so that the same kind of underlining, which once would have been seen as evidence of studiousness, came to be coded as evidence of irresponsibility or sloppiness. That's unfortunate for historians of reading like me, because one of the main sources of evidence on which we draw is marginalia left by past readers. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the changing moral perceptions of books and reading? Sure. One of the great ironies that I found when researching this book is that whereas in the digital era, we're likely to think of printed books as associated with virtues like patience and diligence and absorption and stick-to-it-iveness so that the book becomes a stick with which to beat the kinds of distractibility and laziness that we associate with checking Facebook. The book, for the printed book for most of its history, was associated with precisely those same vices, so that until, again, roughly the second half of the 19th century, many doctors and clergymen thought of sitting down and reading a novel cover to cover as a sign of idleness and laziness and uh, possibly even of immorality. Whereas today, you find doctors recommending novel reading to insomniacs. You find uh, digital detox retreats where you are supposed to lock away your cell phone and take out a copy of War and Peace. So one thing that fascinated me was the sense of the book as a kind of pivot that has been coded at different times and places either as a prompt for uh, virtuous, industrious studiousness, or as a prompt for self-indulgent imagining. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting how, how it's changed. I think one one reporter you had mentioned in, from 1889 uh, ref- likened it to alcoholism, uh, reading too much. I was shocked by that. Because it was seen as a passive enjoyment that unfitted you for more serious activities. And the analogy there was that in the same way that drinking takes away your appetite for solid, nutritious food, too much reading will distract you from the real world and will give you unrealistic expectations of life. One of the more striking social scientific studies that I talk about in the book uh, is a Canadian study that shows that 
uh, people who read frequently for pleasure are likelier to vote, uh, to volunteer, to do a favor for their neighbors, or to stay married. And this would have been news to any 19th century moralist who would have said, just look at Madame Bovary. If you spend too much time reading novels, you're going to get into debt, you're going to cheat on your husband, and you might end up by taking rat poison. So uh, one of the stories that this book tells is how the book has come to mean very different things in different cultures. Mm -hmm. Uh, You talked there about uh, uh, perceptions on gender. How how is gender affect who reads and what they read and when and where and those sorts of things? Today, in rich countries like ours, women outread men and outbuy men in bookstores and outborrow men in libraries. This is especially true for books. There is a gap between women's newspaper and magazine reading and men's newspaper and magazine reading, but it's much smaller than the gap between women's and men's uh, book reading. And that is a relatively recent phenomenon because uh, throughout most of European history, men's literacy was higher than women's. Uh, Women's literacy began to catch up with men's less than two centuries ago. And in much of the developing world, that is still the case because it's expensive to send your child to school, and so you're likelier to invest that resource in your sons than in your daughters. But in rich countries with near-universal literacy, there came a point when women began to outstrip men in reading And one explanation for that may be the fact that men's wages continue to be higher than women's, so that the opportunity cost of spending time reading is lower for women than it is for men. The people who read the most traditionally have been children and old people and women. So everyone whose time does not have a lot of Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned social media throughout the book. Uh, Some things came as very surprising to me. Uh, You you talk about uh, at cover spy on Instagram. I didn't even believe it. I had to look it up. (laughs) Tell us about tell us about cover spy and some of the other ways that uh, books are used or shown on social media. I suspect that some of your listeners will know more about this world than I do. But uh, it turns out that books are popular on Instagram in part for what you might call their coffee table function. That is, other products can be sold by posing them with a particularly beautiful book. Books are printed books are coming increasingly to serve as decorative accessories. And you could say that as their function of transmitting textual content is taken over by other media, 
the job that they are taking on instead is a decorative or ornamental one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, looking at at Cover Spy, I, I saw that you know people are just observing the the books that people are carrying around on the New York subway and in other uh, large cities, which I found very interesting. Yeah, and there are um, increasing numbers of blogs like Cover Spy, like Underground New York Public Library, that memorialize the act of reading in public, especially, interestingly, on public transportation, which I think points to the importance of reading as a communal or civic act. We often think of reading as the archetypally individualistic act, and yet think about how often during the history of reading, especially at times of places where the majority of the population uh, was not literate, of reading aloud, and also of how much the time to read, which we opened this podcast by talking about, is found during a daily commute which, unless you're listening to an audiobook in the privacy of your own car, often means reading silently to yourself in the presence of other people who are reading silently to themselves. This is quite different from the kind of communal reading that you might get in a religious congregation where everyone is reading in unison the same text. But one of the wonderful things about reading on the subway, like reading in a public library, is that you are surrounded by other readers, and yet you are completely in your world, and they are completely in their world. So it's a kind of parallel play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think of reading as as being communal. But uh, I think you're right there that we we come together and. Uh, find the same settings for, for reading. Can you talk uh, about uh, biblioactivism, uh, something you mentioned that uh, you see a lot of bookstores doing nowadays? I talk about uh, two new developments, one being a biblioactivist and the other bibliotherapy. Bibliotherapy is more medicalized. It's the idea that reading can address mental or bodily ills, whether that means uh, extending to adults the logic of the children's bedtime story, or you read before bedtime in order to lull yourself to sleep, or whether that means reading in order to find ways of coping with mild to moderate uh, depression or anxiety. When I talk about bibliotectivism, I mean by that uh, various groups of uh, community organizers or political organizers who have found the act of distributing printed matter or reading material useful for building a sense 
of community. And in some ways, you could see this as a secular version of older organizations like the Gideons, that is, uh, the distribution of religious reading material has long been a form of social glue within religious communities. And what seems interesting right now is an attempt to extend that logic outside of a religious context to hand out copies of novels on the street corner or on the subway or to think of the public library as a space of social inclusion. And that's why I was especially struck by the determination of librarians in various parts of the world affected by current uh, population migrations to insist that anyone is allowed to walk into the library whatever their immigration status, whatever kind of documentation they have, that the library is a civic space for everyone to share. And I go back a couple of hundred years to think about all the ways in which that sense of the library as a space in which different kinds of people rub elbows has worried social conservatives so that, for example, when the first taxpayer-supported public libraries emerged in the middle of the 19th century, close on their heels comes a new invention uh, in England called the uh, fumigator or book disinfectant, which is essentially a kind of gas chamber for books in which the book gets fumigated to remove any diseases that its pages might carry from those bad homes on the other side of the tracks, which you might contract by borrowing a book that someone of a different social class or a different ethnicity has borrowed before you. So I think uh, the question of how far the book can bring together people who otherwise have nothing in common remains a politically charged one. Mm-hmm. And and what roles are, are bookstores uh, playing in, in that? Uh, I think they're playing a very important role in that, once again, as the basic function of buying and selling increasingly, unfortunately, is being taken over by online retailers. Bookstores are reinventing themselves as community spaces, event spaces. In some ways, you could say as something more analogous to the public library. It seems to me that the gap between bookstores and libraries is narrowing as bookstores are reclaiming their civic function. Hmm. Can you talk about the future of books? You mentioned a post-paper world. Is is that something you see soon coming soon? 
I will give that a pass because I think it's anybody's guess. Sure. I I just don't know. Well, um, then how about how books uh, change? I got the impression that it's not really the books that are changing, but that it's it's ourselves and our society. Well, and that's an interesting distinction. It's maybe analogous to saying that guns don't kill people. People kill people. Books are what you make of them. And one advantage of tracing this object throughout its various historical twists and turns is to see how many different meanings a single object has accrued at different times and places. And precisely because books have taken so many different forms, ranging from a folio on a lectern, changed to a table, to a paperback that could be slipped in a GI's pocket during the Second World War. I have every faith that books will be resilient. I don't think we know in what form. Mm-hmm. But I think they will continue to change as they always have. Uh, you seem to argue that books are quite innovative. Um, you mentioned that they're the first consumer goods marketed specifically as gifts and the first to be sold on consumer credit. And what other ways have books been innovative? Right. So those two examples are come from the media historian Ted Stripas, who points out that Books have often, at different historical moments, been a driver of new ways of not just manufacturing, but also of marketing and inventorying consumer goods. So books were one of the first objects to be sold on browsable, open shelving, rather than kept behind the counter, and books Shows were also one of the first goods to be sold on credit, in part because it was more respectable to buy a book on credit than to buy a dress on credit. And in that sense, you could say that we have books to thank for uh, the credit economy that would later spread to uh, all kinds of consumer goods, including, of course, to housing and to the home mortgage industry. Um, In the 20th century, books were at the forefront of electronic uh, warehousing and inventory control systems. And that's precisely why when uh, one could find anything for his new e-commerce system, books were the logical place for him to test it out. Uh, They're one of the first books to be barcoded. They're one of the first books to have a standardized uh, identification system that is the international standard book number. And books are also, if you think about their physical shape, they were a natural guinea pig for e commerce because their shape is relatively standardized. Most books are some kind of rectangle, and so they are easy to send through the mail. And so I would push back against the increasingly common idea that 
of the book as some kind of the oldie, traditional, uh, unchanging nostalgia item that has existed from time immemorial, because over the past millennium or so that printed books have existed, the only constant has been that they have always been changing. And that might be as good a point as any to end on. Yeah. Uh, that, I'm really quite amazed at how adaptable books have been and, and how they've led the way in, in so many ways that I, I didn't know before reading this book. Uh, oh, long may they adapt. So why do you why do you read? How how would you articulate that? I read the way I grieve. Um, the rest of my life depends on the fact that I read. What What about you? Uh, mostly to get information. I, I don't generally read for pleasure. Um, but I'm always just trying to learn something, and I don't know how else to do it if, I, if I'm not reading. Well, the listeners can learn by listening as well as by reading. I realize we haven't talked about the audiobook, but uh, I am very glad that podcasts like yours allow people to experience words in yet another medium. Definitely. Uh, so what are you working on now? I am starting a, uh, so I have just moved as of a week ago to Rutgers University to start a new project called the Rutgers Book Initiative that attempts to integrate uh, the teaching of literature and book history with the book arts and book book making. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to take my students to a letterpress where we're going to learn to set type, and we're going to uh, go to a studio where we will make paper, and uh, I will be able to tell you more in a few weeks. Well, wonderful, and and uh, I'm sure your students will be inspired by that. It's always a, a great experience, I think, to see how books are made. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've been talking with Leah Price, author of the book, What We Talk About When We Talk About Books. Thank you so much, Dr. Price. Thank you so much, Colin.